Welcome to the Migraine Miracle Moment. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Turknett. I'm a neurologist, migraine specialist, migraine sufferer, and author of the book, The Migraine Miracle. In this podcast, you'll learn all about how to find your path to migraine freedom without pills. Let's get started. Hello, Beastlayers. Welcome to another episode of the Migraine Miracle Moment podcast. Thank you for joining me. We are about to say goodbye to 2019, and we have a lot of exciting things coming in 2020, um, the first of which you will hear about this Saturday, an exciting announcement that will come also as an episode. In this particular episode, this is going to be part two of the uh, series on what supplements migraineurs should take. So in the first episode, we talked about what supplements migraineurs should consider taking that would fall into the category of what I would consider true supplementation. So correcting for a potential deficiency and ones that would be particularly relevant for someone who is prone to migraine. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to go back and listen to it first. In this one, we are going to be talking about the other kind of supplementation, which you can think of as therapeutic supplementations. And I think it's probably the case that many folks, perhaps even most, who take a supplement are actually doing so for this particular reason, rather than to correct a deficiency, so rather than the true uh, idea behind supplementation. So in this case, with therapeutic supplementation, you're trying, rather than trying to correct a nutritional deficiency that we think exists for some reason, we're using a supplement essentially the same way we'd use a medication, so to achieve some kind of therapeutic benefit, thinking of the supplement as having some kind of medicinal value beyond just serving the basic needs that of human physiology. And probably one reason so many people take supplements for this particular reason is because marketers have found it's far easier to sell people something something that they think will solve a particular problem rather than something they should do in the interest of their long-term health, which is really the case with most um, supplementation. So just as a random example, um, people often take B12, and they do so to help with things like mental clarity or to, to help with brain fog. And someone who's feeling tired and sluggish a lot will feel a lot more motivated to spend money on a B12 supplement if they think it will solve that problem. So in these cases, we're essentially taking more than we need to meet our basic nutrient requirements in hopes that it will achieve some particular goal. Yet there are very few instances where this is actually true, and most supplements that are marketed for things like this have, have never been shown to do the sorts of things they're promoted as doing. Supplements are not under the same regulations as pharmaceuticals, which do have to produce research that backs their therapeutic claims, and supplements do not. And this whole concept of therapeutic supplementation plays on our bias that more of something is better. So, for example, continuing with the B12 example, it is definitely true that a deficiency of vitamin B12 will cause cognitive impairments and low energy levels. But it is not true that taking extra amounts of it will give us extra cognitive powers or extra energy. But it is this particular cognitive error that most supplement makers capitalize on, this concept that more is better. 
Also, it's worth pointing out here that no supplement or pill will ever hold a candle to what we can achieve with diet and lifestyle interventions, and it is naive of us to think otherwise. So the magnitude of their effect is going to be substantially less than those sorts of things, or anything that we would do to strengthen the three pillars of protection against migraine. And furthermore, the benefits of any therapeutic supplement are likely to be magnified when the three pillars are already in order. And then these things, like supplements, can be considered some of the final tweaks that you might make. And the reason I'm prefacing this discussion with these comments is because there's actually only a very small fraction of the total body of uh, supplements out there that are even worth considering as being possibly helpful. So I'm going to focus here on the ones that at least have some evidence of benefit for migraine prevention, and there are really just two that fall into that category. At one point, there were three that you might could say that about, the third one being Butterbur, but because of issues that arose with liver toxicity, that one has been taken off as a recommended supplement for migraine prevention. So that leaves two left. The first of those is riboflavin. And so riboflavin is one of the B vitamins. Specifically, it is vitamin B2. Um, like most B vitamins, it has, a, has many different roles that it plays in the body. Um, one of its most significant roles is in the production of energy uh, at the level of the mitochondria. Now, it's always nice when we think about taking something uh, that we have some kind of biologically plausible mechanism by which it could help. And in this case, uh, there is evidence to think that, that uh, something like vitamin B2 could help with migraines. Um, there is evidence that mitochondrial dysfunction plays a role in uh, migraines. It's still an area of early research, but there's enough there to suggest that there, uh, that there could be a link. So riboflavin is an integral part of two coenzymes, FAD and FMN, uh, flavin adenine dinucleotide and flavin mononucleotide that are part of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. So this is the thing that essentially generates energy from food uh, at the level of the cells. So it is necessary for energy production and uh, defects in that process have been linked to uh, migraine. So again, a reasonable link between taking vitamin B and improving migraines. So there are a handful of studies that have been done on riboflavin. Um, as is the case with most supplements, there is not the same level of research that there is in pharmaceuticals since there is less money to be made from them. Um, but one randomized placebo study showed that 59% of subjects achieved greater than a 50% reduction in headache days compared to 15% for those taking placebo. Additionally, there have been head-to-head -head studies against other pharmaceuticals that are used for migraine prevention. Um, there have been head-to-head -head studies with riboflavin compared to valproate or Depakote and propranolol or Indorol, and those showed equivalency. So the same level of benefit is essentially seen with subjects getting either of those. And both of those are considered first-line preventative treatments for migraines. Now, as you probably know, there is nothing available that has a major impact on uh, migraine reduction, but at least we can say that based on the, of the evidence that we have, uh, vitamin B2 appears to be as good at preventing migraines as the best available pharmaceuticals that we have for doing so. Now, there does remain the possibility that uh, vitamin B2 exerts its influence through something known as the augmented placebo effect. 
And so this is something that I touched on a little bit in the book, The Migraine Miracle. So essentially, the placebo effect occurs when the expectation that something you are doing or something you are taking, um, the expectation that it is going to help, causes that thing to help. And we know that is a very well-established phenomenon, enough so that we have to control for it anytime we're testing a new drug. We know that there's going to be a percentage of people who will improve simply based on the placebo effect alone. Now, in clinical trials, the subjects and those conducting the trials are supposed to be blinded, meaning that the subjects and the researchers don't know who is getting what drug. Yet one of the problems here is that if a drug has side effects, then the subjects may realize that they are actually taking the active form of the drug. Um, in most placebo trials, the placebos themselves are entirely inert, so they have no biological effects. So what this means is that if some of your subjects now recognize that they've actually gotten the active drug, that may boost the placebo effect even further. So if you look across all of the studies that have been done on migraine preventatives, almost all of them have about the same benefit when compared to placebo, and all of them do have recognizable side effects. So it remains entirely possible that the augmented placebo effect, this effect of realizing that you have actually gotten the active drug and aren't being given the placebo, is accounting for that extra benefit. Now, it may occur to you that you could control for this by giving a placebo that did have some sort of side effect, so an active placebo, as it would be called. And this was actually done uh, a few decades ago, ago with the antidepressants, where it was speculated that perhaps some of the uh, benefits being seen with antidepressant drugs over placebo was because of this augmented placebo effect since those drugs had recognizable side effects. And in fact, what they did show when they tested uh, the available antidepressants against active placebos was that in most cases, the, the effects of the antidepressants uh, went away entirely. Now, unfortunately, since then, uh, this has not been done, including in other trials where the augmented placebo effect may be playing a significant role. And this is a major limitation of many of the uh, pharmaceutical studies. So what is the uh, application here to vitamin B2? Well, if any of you have taken vitamin B2, you know that it turns your urine a very bright yellow or orange color. And in fact, if you don't realize that it's doing that, it is very alarming at first. So even though these studies that have been done uh, on vitamin B2 are supposedly blinded, meaning the subjects don't know which medication they took, all they have to do is look in their urine to know whether they are getting the uh, active form of the drug or not. So it remains entirely possible that with vitamin B2, as with all of the other migraine preventatives, that the augmented placebo effect is at least accounting for some, if not most, of the uh, benefits ab above the placebo. Incidentally, this effect may also explain why the results in clinical trials of preventative medications always seem to exceed our real-world experience, So, and why the benefits always seem to be so great at the beginning when a drug is first released and when the hype is so high and then diminishes from that point in time because, as you'd expect, when there's a lot of hype, uh, the expectations are at their greatest, and so you're going to see the greatest placebo effects. We're already starting to see this trend unfold with the new class of CGRP medication, so I think every patient that I've had who went on one right from the start, wanted to, has reverted back to their uh, baseline. So you can certainly make an argument that the augmented placebo effect accounts for a lot of what we see uh, clinically. 
Um, and so it may be no coincidence that the supplement that has arguably the best data on it also has a way that subjects can detect when they're on it uh, when they're supposedly in a double-blinded clinical trial. But the upside is that there is minimal risk uh, with taking vitamin B2, and the standard uh, dose that has been recommended and tested is 400 milligrams per day. Also, it's worth pointing out that our mismatched diets and lifestyles likely does lead to mitochondrial dysfunction in substantial numbers of people. So it could be that in some folks who are having mitochondrial dysfunction, taking vitamin B2 may mitigate that to some degree. So in that way, at least addressing one of the root causes here of uh, an increased vulnerability to migraines. And then the second supplement worth considering along the lines of therapeutic supplementation is magnesium. Magnesium is a mineral that is enormously important to human life. Uh, we can't live without it, and it is involved in virtually every part of human physiology. And for several years now, we've known of some intriguing links between migraine and magnesium. And the studies that have been done appear to indicate that there are low levels of magnesium or ionized magnesium in the nervous system in migraineurs, or at least a subset of migraineurs, including during a migraine attack and maybe specifically during that time. Um, there's also some evidence that giving high-dose IV magnesium is an effective abortive treatment, uh, possibly by mitigating this particular effect. Um, you, we rarely see it used uh, in clinically, like in the emergency department, in large part because there's no pharmaceutical companies to promote its use. Additionally, there is also evidence that supplementing with magnesium can help reduce migraine frequency. And again, the numbers that, have, that we see in trials are in line with what is seen with other preventatives. And the, the typical dose that's been used is 400 milligrams per day. It's worth noting that the form of magnesium that you take matters, so you can't take plain magnesium. It comes as a salt, meaning it's bound up with another element, and there are several to choose from here. There are things like magnesium oxide, which is, which is poorly absorbed, magnesium glycate, I mean gliconate, um, propionate, malate. The one that uh, I've taken uh, and that I typically recommend is magnesium 3 and 8 uh, because it has the best penetration into the nervous system, at least according to the studies that we have. The other good thing about or the advantage of, my, of uh, magnesium is that it has minimal downsides. So we're actually limited in how much we can absorb through the GI tract. So you can't really overdose on it. Um, the excess will be excreted. And many of you may know that uh, magnesium is also given as a laxative. So once you exceed the amount that can be absorbed, it works as a lax laxative. So it's essentially self-limiting in the amount that you can absorb at any one time. It's also worth mentioning that when you are measuring magnesium on, in blood work, um, what you're getting is the extracellular magnesium, and this does not reflect the amount that is stored in the body. So you can have uh, an entirely normal result and still have uh, insufficient stores of magnesium in the body. And in fact, magnesium deficiency is one of the most common deficiencies that people have these days on uh, the standard Western diet. So it's possible, I think, that there are two things going on with this link between migraines and magnesium. One being that the migraine process itself uh, results in reduced amounts of extracellular magnesium in the nervous system. 
again, I mentioned that there are studies that show that there are reduced levels during a migraine attack. And we know that there are massive shifts in the flux of ions in the brain during migraines, especially during the uh, cortical spreading depression phase. So it's certainly plausible that the changes seen in magnesium during a migraine are a consequence of that flux. And then helping the body to restore uh, magnesium equilibrium with an IV infusion may be why it's helping in that circumstance. And then the other uh, thing that may be going on with this link is that a deficiency of magnesium, which I said is pretty common these days, predisposes folks towards uh, migraines. So in that case, correcting that deficiency by taking a supplement would improve that particular vulnerability. Now, it's important to note here that this is still very much an evolving science, so the link between magnesium and migraine still hasn't been definitively established, um, nor do we know with any precision the nature of this particular link and the, and the interaction here. As with most things in biology, especially when we're talking about the level of cellular and neuronal action, uh, interactions and ion fluxes and so forth, there's still far more we don't know than, than we do. But we can still make some reasonable decisions based on the things that we do know and the things that we can be fairly, fairly certain of. And so when it comes to magnesium, first and foremost is it's best to ensure that you're getting plenty of magnesium from the diet. Like I said, I suspect that when it is helpful as a supplement, it's helpful because it is correcting for a deficiency. So if you're getting enough in the diet, you won't have that deficiency to begin with. Some of the best places to get it in the diet are organ meats, um, leafy greens, though it is less bioavailable in plants than it is in animal foods. Some fish are high in magnesium, like salmon and halibut. And then nuts are also high in magnesium, again, less bioavailable, and sometimes a little bit problematic for the migraineur, especially depending on what phase uh, you're in on the timeline of migraine freedom. So again, best to get from the diet, but if you want to hedge your bets and take a supplement, probably not an unreasonable thing to do as well. So getting back to our original question, is there any evidence that there is such a thing as a therapeutic supplement, uh, at least with respect to migraines? And the answer there, maybe, maybe not. So like I mentioned for vitamin B2, Taking amounts in excess of what you need to meet your normal requirements um, has been shown to be helpful against placebo. However, it's entirely possible that that could be accounted for on the basis of the augmented placebo effect uh, rather than a direct effect of the uh, B2 itself. And then with respect to magnesium, uh, it's entirely possible that in that case, what we're actually seeing is that magnesium is correcting for a deficiency, uh, given that we know that magnesium deficiency is very common uh, these days, and it's not easy to test for, so it's not something you can just detect on a regular blood test. As I said, the benefits of vitamin B2 could conceivably be accounted for based on the augmented placebo effect alone because it turns your pee orange and none of the trials required subjects to pee with blindfolds on, so we don't know the answer to that question. So all in all, as I talked about in the beginning of this uh, two-part series, most important is going to be building the three pillars of protection against migraine. And I do know with certainty that you can move from phase one to phase four, which is our goal, on the timeline of migraine freedom without having to take any supplements of this nature, and by simply building the three pillars of protection. And for me, the main scenario where I'm recommending people to take these particular things is in someone who is not willing to make diet and lifestyle changes that would build the three pillars. So the same scenarios where I would typically recommend a judicious use of a pharmaceutical. 
Okay, that's it for this episode. You will find links to uh, the supplements that I mentioned, including the ones that I've uh, taken myself and typically recommend in the show notes, as well as by going to the um, website. Uh, you'll find the transcript of the uh, this episode and all others by going to MyMigraineMiracle.com and clicking on the podcast tab on the top menu. I hope everyone has a safe and wonderful New Year's, and I will be back with you soon this coming Saturday with a very exciting announcement, so don't miss out on that. All right, thanks so much for listening. Now it's time to go out and slay the beast. Mm -hmm.